Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. We're asking people around the park, have you ever heard of the term Afrofuturism? I've never heard of the term. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes, I have. I have heard of Afrofuturism. How would you define it? The idea of an Afrocentric world in the future. A forward-thinking look. Explores different ways of technology and future and how one involves in a social political climate. It's about the importance of, because we focus a lot on like black history, but also like black futures are important too. And I think it's just about focusing on that. And who comes to mind for you? Like Sun Ra or like Janelle Monet. Big Janelle Monet fan. I would say Octavia Butler. I first researched the term because of a theater company. They were these two amazing black women that were part of their resident program. They were creating an Afrofuture work. And so when I saw their work, I was like, oh, what is Afrofuturism? It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and Happy New Year. We're going to start 2023 by trying to simultaneously look backward and imagine a radical future. That seems like a good way to describe the work of production designer and visual artist Hannah Beekler. Over the past decade or so, she has created some of the most beautiful, complex, and richly Black worlds in film. She's designed worlds for Moonlight, for Beyonce's Lemonade, and most famously, for both Black Panther films. I spoke to her last year just after she'd tried a little different medium. She curated an Afrofuturism period room at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is now a permanent exhibit at the world-famous museum. So we're going to kick off 2023 by revisiting my conversation with Hannah Beekler. So for you, what is Afrofuturism? You know, I think there's a lot of different definitions, but for me, Afrofuturism is sort of a reimagining of a history, right? It's sort of like going back and reclaiming how history has seen Africans and African-Americans throughout time. So it's sort of this idea that the past, the present, and the future is not linear, but circular in Mm -hmm. a sense. Our present is influencing our future, is influencing our past. So it's just sort of the playing with time and uh, how we sort of retell our own stories with our own agency. Well, you are the lead curator for the new Afrofuturist period room at the Met. Uh, And it is this fascinating illustration of everything you're just talking about. Uh, And people who visit the exhibit step into a speculative future home of the residents of what was once Seneca Village. So can you introduce listeners to Seneca Village? Yeah, Seneca Village was a predominantly Black, also Irish community in Manhattan. 
where Central Park is. So it was a lot of freed Black men and women, born free as well as freed slaves, who kind of escaped the, you know, city, if you will, of New York and moved into a more rural area Mm -hmm. and started a community called Seneca Village, almost where the Met is located. It's probably about a 10-minute walk from the Met. It was about 1827 to 1857, so right before the Civil War. And if you owned land as a freed black man or woman, you had to have spent $250, and then you had the right to vote. It had been a thriving community, people. Yes. and, And it was taken by the state. You know, there was probably about 300 people. And the way they took it was, and many of the the same sort of idea that was happening around a lot of Black communities at the time is by saying that they were the slums and it would be better if they took them down and made this beautiful park because this was an eyesore. But that wasn't the truth. And this exhibit was sort of an, an homage to the people, to the idea of community, of a protopian society and um, a conversation of the past and the future and the present um, around Seneca Village and what it meant. How did you even, just as a designer, begin to imagine this this collapsing of past, present, and future of a place like that? Well, you know, I just sort of thought about what are the things in a home? Because really, these communities are about home. These communities are about wanting the things that everybody has, family, a safe place, love, peace, and a place to thrive where you are wanted. And that's where I started. Mm. And for me, that's the kitchen. Because so much of Black culture, me living in New Orleans um, and looking around at my neighborhood, and and it's a lot about food, it's a lot about being neighbors, it's a lot about tradition. In New Orleans, we still have these 100-year-old traditions. I wanted to start there. That's where I remember mm-hmm. getting my hair hot combed, you know, <laughs> and, you know, getting the grease behind my ears and, and people being in the kitchen and cooking and me being on my mom's skirt and the steam coming off of the stove and the conversations and the arguments and my brothers and sisters and I having water fights. And the kitchen is really where life happens. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to... uh show that as part of what maybe Seneca Village could be like. That's how you're going to know these people as people. Let's start in that kitchen um, that you're describing, Hannah. Uh, Tell me about some of the choices you're making there. Like, what would you direct my eye to first? I think the first thing that I would hope that people would do when they walk in is look through our windows. So on the sides of the structure, there's different size windows sort of sporadically placed and at different heights. And I did that because for me, looking into what is the past Mm -hmm. for a lot of African-Americans, not all, but most, and a lot of Africans in the diaspora, we only get a little piece of that past. You only see so much. Mm -hmm. And I wanted everyone to sort of have this experience. There's everything inside that room, but you only get to see a little sliver of it. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing in this room, the big thing in the room is the fireplace, which is right in the center. The big And it kind of twirls up into the rafters, which has concentral circles around it. And this is our time machine. This is bringing all the beautiful artifacts that you see from Roberto Lugo, from um, Fabiola Jean-Louis, 
from Atong Tikshari, uh, our beautiful chairs that he's um, made that fabulous, beautiful paper dress is sitting in. The dress to me is representative of the woman who lives in this and she is sitting, she is at rest, her body is at rest. And that is an important piece to me because so often we're deemed as strong and warriors and working right. and fighting. and The mules of the world, rarely as Neil Hurston tells us. That's right, at rest, yeah. sitting and looking over the future that we protect with our time machine. So, you know, and a lot of it is me wanting people to come in and just have their own experience. Both ends are open because you can only see the future through the past and you can only see the past through the future. And the precipice where our body is sitting sits between them both, that is our present. Um, That's sort of how this room is laid out. You, you mentioned that Roberto Lugo, um, this Philadelphia artist, Roberto Lugo, there's a lot of his pottery in the exhibit. And there's one um, that uh, it, it's kind of like an urn, I think, that has a portrait of Harriet Tubman on one side and Erica Badu on the other. Um, tell me about that urn. It sounds like it's, uh, um, and what it's doing in that room, because it sounds like it's doing a lot of what you're talking about. It is. It's a conversation. And I think that that's... Um representative of so much. Roberto wanted to really bring in powerful, strong women in our past, in our future, and all the things that they represented of freedom, of choice, of agency. These are conversations we've been having, right? These are conversations that are cyclical. So to me, that represents sort of where we are, where we're going, and the fight and the struggle to stay there. You you said earlier that going back to the window, you said that for you, your experience with Black history is only being able to see a little bit of yourself. Can can you say more about that? What did you What do you mean by that? Well, I feel like personally, I don't really know about my past, my ancestors, my relatives. You know, it it seems as though it sometimes people kind of think like African Americans sort of like popped up in cotton fields, and here we were. Mm-hmm. And our past, the history that we teach, really doesn't teach beyond that. I never really understood my connection with Africa. Or do I have a connection with Africa? I don't know who my my ancestors right. were here. Um, they could have come from the Dominican Republic and they could have come from uh, South America. I, I don't really know this. So anything I learn, every time I learn something, it's like looking into a little window and seeing more. Like I'm walking in a cave with a flashlight and every occasionally you get something on the wall. And I wanted that experience. I wanted everyone to understand like when you're walking around the world, really not knowing everything about your past. Like I can't just go back and be like, I came from France and Mm -hmm. came over and, you know, I don't know. Um, A lot, I know a lot of people had to survive for me to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the window. That was the idea of the windows. Everybody experienced that, that you see only so much. Yeah. Well, back on our tour, when you move into the living room area, uh, there are lots of images as well in this space. And I'm I'm really drawn to the portrait of Andrea Motley Crabtree. And she's depicted here. She's sitting, but done up in this fantastical diving gear. Tell me about this work. When I first saw this work, when the Met had presented it to me and said, this would be something that's great in the room as part of their collection. And then they explained, like, you know, she was the first um, black woman to be a deep sea diver. And 
it made so much sense at that point because we know so little about the ocean. We know so little about space. We know so little about ourselves and our journey. It's all kind of wrapped up in a, in the same sort of feeling of of flight and and weightlessness. Then I really wanted that that you could stand in the very back by the kitchen and look all the way through and you see the time machine, you see Fabiola's dress, and then you see this beautiful portrait. Mm -hmm. And that line that it creates through this space from and one end to another, from the past to the future, that past is the future. This black woman is the woman in space. That is who I look at the stars every night and see. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wanted that there. And so, Hannah, after someone has experienced this space, what, what is it you hope they take away as they walk out? Joy. Mm. Black joy. My mission is to teach Black joy before Black pain. No child needs to learn that first. I learned that first. And so I want people to walk in, and what you see is joyful. What you experience through, through the pain is joyful. Um, you know, we put hundreds of iron nails in the side of the structure, and they had asked me why, and I said, because iron is so important. It is the thing that shackled us, and it's the thing that freed us. Mm. Wow. I want this to be like that. I want this, the thing, to be the freedom. I'm talking with Hannah Beekler about the exhibit she curated for the Metropolitan Museum called Before Yesterday, We Could Fly, an Afrofuturist period room. Hannah's many credits as a designer include the film Black Panther, for which she won an Oscar for Best Production Design. We'll take a break and we'll talk more with Hannah about her career and about collapsing the future with the past. Stay with us. We often think of universities as isolated ivory towers. But the fact is, politics have always been present on campus. This is Kai, and after you're done with our show, take a listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour, where David Rimnick talks with students at Harvard. It has been a tense time. Students have tried to have dialogue over how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Reporters from the Harvard Crimson, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, this is Kai, and I just want to take a second to say thank you. Our show is nothing, literally, without all of you, and we literally couldn't make it without your participation. So whether you are downloading it as a podcast every week, or whether you're tuning in via YouTube, or if you're tuning in live to the radio or on the stream every week, or even some weeks, you know, or even just once in the past year. I don't care. The point is, if you were there, if you participated, uh, if you got something out of it and told somebody else about it, then just thanks. And here's to 2023 and making more awesome shows together. Talk soon. Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. This week, we are revisiting my conversation from last year with production designer and visual artist Hannah Beekler. 
She's designed the visual backdrop for some of the most iconic black films of the past decade. We're talking about Moonlight, Creed, Beyonce's visual album Lemonade, and of course, Fruitvale Station, which was the wrenching biopic of Oscar Grant and that launched director Ryan Coogler's career. She also designed both Black Panther films and, of course, won an Oscar for the first one. Just tell me about working on that film. It, it meant so much to so many Black people, and I just wonder what it meant for you. It, it meant so much <laughs> to this Black woman. Um, it was big, and I knew it was bigger than me, you know? I just felt compelled to to do this, you know, and then there was a lot of drive for that. And I have, of course, Mr. Ryan Coogler to thank, right, for being having the opportunity to put um, on screen what I felt was so important for people to see a fictional Black nation to be, what it could be. Mm-hmm. And so it was daunting. I mean, I walked in and I wasn't quite sure what, <laughs> what it was, and Ryan was like, okay, so... I need to know how many people there are. What do they do? Where do they live? What are the, tell me everything about the country. Uh, where do they go? How do they drive? What are the streets? What are the stories? And I was like, I have to tell you all. I can't just make a pretty set. <laughs> set. And so it was start building the world. Mm. And I just dug in and I started from scratch. And um, yeah, how do you build a world? You start with where is it? What is it? How big is it? Where does the country look like? What is the environment? What is the climate? Where is the capital? Now, how many people? How did they get there? Where did they migrate from? Why did they migrate there? What do they specialize in? How does their tradition evolve to be 50 years in the future from the West? What is the timeline? We, we built the whole timeline that shows you Wakanda from the Bronze Age to the present. And, and it started with Black Joy. It's also like that's I'm thinking about what you said previously. It's it's rooted in Black Joy. It's, Absolutely. Absolutely. So we did the work and I'm not going to lie. It was scary. You know, it's a big <laughs> movie. It's a big company. I was just coming off of Creed, which was nowhere near that size. You know, I did this big presentation with all of the execs over at Marvel. I was scared to death and my advice from Ryan was just be yourself. And I went in and I was, you know, I was loud. I was excited. Um, <laughs> yes. And I wanted them to see that um, that this black woman can handle this big budget, <clears throat> handle a large crew and be creative and pragmatic and give them everything they want. But my main concern was making sure that I was doing right by my community in the diaspora uh, and in America because I am an African-American. That is my experience. So I, you know, put a little bit of that experience into this African nation as well. But I just wanted to make sure I was doing right by everybody. Well, you truly handled it, in fact. But our our producer pointed me to an IndieWire article in which you said that the first decade of your production work uh, in your career was a real struggle and that you almost left the business. It was a real struggle. I mean, when I started out, um, and I started out as a set dresser in the, in, in the art department, and I worked my way up through all the different crafts in, in New Orleans. And you just get to the place where it felt like Hollywood was a thousand miles away, and, and it was physically as well as, uh, you know, figuratively. And no one knew my name, and how am I going to get out there, and how am I going to get these other jobs? And, 
Wynn Thomas, who is a mentor of mine, Spike Lee's production designer for his entire career. You know, I called Wynn, like, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I need to start finding something else. And, you know, I, I thought he was going to feel sorry for me and pity me. And he said, well, you need to get your damn ass up and get back in the business. Like, <laughs> there is no, you can, no crying. You know, I don't care what you say. You're not leaving. Stand up, brush yourself off, and that's it, girl. Stop. Uh, uh, and I, you know, it kind of took me back. Like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> let me stop. He was too. not playing around with me. He was like, I'm, "You're not going to get a little pity party if that's what you're looking for. It's hard. Yeah. So go uh, work. Uh. Well, and and so you went to work, and eventually you I connected did. with um, a. At the time, 25-year-old Ryan Coogler, he is That's right. obviously a massive figure at this point, but this was his breakout moment as well. And you, the start of your collaboration with him was the film Fruitville Station, um, That's right. which was a pivotal film for me, I have to say, in terms of trying to look at Black pain and Black joy at the same time. Um, it was just such a difficult film to watch. T- tell me about working on that project. W- what was that like? I mean, that that was that changed everything. So after Wynn kind of, you know, got me together, collected me a little bit, he said, go get an agent. I did. And the first script they brought to me was for Fruitvale Station. I read it. I cried my eyes out. And I said, I, I want to do this film. Uh, I had a meeting with Ryan, and he hired me the same day. And um, like a few months later, I drove out to... Um, Oakland and dog sat so I could work on this <laughs> dog sat. And um, I became a different person and a different filmmaker having worked with Ryan on that film. Everything I thought I knew changed uh, about how to tell a story. Mm. He taught me perspective. He taught me storytelling visually and that the place that we're in is as important as the story itself. And that's where I would come in, the place. Mm -hmm. And he taught me all about that because of his love for Oakland, because of his love for black people, because of his love uh, for black joy and the need to tell this story. And it was not easy. It was really a difficult, emotional uh, story to get through. And so it takes a toll uh, on all of us. We were working 20 22-hour days at that point. So we were also exhausted trying to get this done with very little money, but trying to do the absolute best we could. There was me plus one other person in my department. Wow. Um, so I kind of did everything. But I just watched Ryan, and he blew me away. And I knew, I can remember saying to his family, nothing will ever be the same for him after this, ever again. You are watching the rise of a uh, important filmmaker in the history of film. Like, I, th- that took me, by the end of the film, I knew that's what I was watching. Right, right. Now, if he was ever going to call me again or not, I don't know. <laughs> right, but you knew he would, him and Michael B. Jordan were about to go someplace. Well, luckily you did too. I, I, so, I mean, you and I are, are talking now not only amid Black History Month, but just after Trayvon Martin's birthday. Um, yes. He would yes. have been 27 years old this month. He was killed 10 years ago. Uh, this month also began with Amir Locke being killed by police in yet another no-knock raid in Minneapolis. And it may be a silly question to ask you, but you know, in the context of all that has happened since Fruitvale Station, what do you feel like 
art like that film can do about this anti-Black violence? What is, what is its role in responding to these awful moments? Humanity. Mm. What Fruitvale Station did was show people Oscar's humanity. He is a human being first, and that is so important. Um, though Moonlight wasn't about police violence or brutality, it was about a different type of brutality. And I believe it did the same thing as show humanity, and those are so important in black cinema. The complexities of, of black people, um, that we aren't a monolith, that we are individuals, we are um, humans, not just sons, daughters, aunts, uncles. We are humans. We don't have to be these other things in order to be seen as human. And that's what Ryan wanted to say. That was the importance of the scene with the pit bull. Mm. And Ryan and I talked about that and talked about that and talked about that and struggled with that scene. But at the end of the day, you know, he said, looked at me and he said, oftentimes black men are looked at like pit bulls. You can run them down in the middle of the road and keep going. They are the not needed of society. They are the danger of society. And to show Oscar with that pit bull, holding that pit bull, was such an important scene. And I think uh, kind of rounded out in, in the height of the humanity within this young man for whatever mistakes he made, for whoever anyone thought he was. He was someone's son, and he was a person, and he was killed. And I stood over the bullet hole in the BART station at Fruvale Station and looked at it. And we stood around it with Ryan and held hands, and he prayed. That's how hard that film was to do. Oh, and that's why those films are important. As a consumer of this work, it feels to me like Fruitvale Station was the beginning of this movement in Black film. Is that what it feels like to you as well? And if so, how would you describe it? Absolutely, it feels like that to me. Sometimes I feel like I just got swept up in this moment um, that I'm so grateful and blessed for. And, and, and it was a moment, and I knew it was coming in a weird way. It's this moment of reckoning. And film is such a powerful medium, right? That I think people were suddenly seeing like this, it's time for us to tell our stories and fighting for that. This generation of young people that have come in and made these films have been fighting for this. And, you know, it's the springboard of Spike Lee. It's the springboard of John Singleton. It's the springboard of Antoine Fuqua and F. Gary Gray. And you go back and back and back even further, right? And uh, I'm quite proud of that. this work, this body of work um, from working with B and Barry Jenkins and Ryan, of course. Uh, it feels like, truthfully, I don't often say, okay. sometimes, like I'm just this general that's protecting my people, mm. protecting the story. Mm. Because I'm a fighter, I'll tell you what, I make sure that people aren't going to play games and silliness when we're making these movies. Okay. That the nuances that aren't usually there, that people don't usually know, are there because it's my experience as part of my community. And I stand strong and firm 
between what you see on the screen and what you might have seen on the screen. I make sure it's there, that people can see themselves in a real way, in a genuine way. Uh, not the way people want to see us, but the way that we are in all of our complications, messiness, and joy. Um, so I see myself as, you know, these filmmakers coming to me because they know that I'll stand strong for that and I'll dig as deep as I have to dig and do the research until I can't see straight to make sure that it's right. Because I'll tell you what, I don't know if I can cuss, but I'll be goddamn if it's going to not be something that's going to make these stereotypes continue. No more of this perpetuation. I need people to see us as individuals. Uh, that we all do these different things. It's not just like, oh, well, sports and music. Right, right. That's what y'all are. It's like, no, man. We are human you know? beings. We are differentiated human beings. All the way through. And that's sort of how I saw my role in this moment that's happening and why it's, it's art department and production design to paint, right? To paint our world uh, for the story. And, and that's what I think I'm doing, but I am in a way a guardian of, of that world. And that's how I sort of feel, you know. Before I let you go, I, I want to play a little bit of your acceptance speech at the Academy Awards. <laughs> so, so setting aside the fabulous bold red ground you were wearing, which I, I mean, yes, um, it, it was emotional and really quite inspiring uh, in the way you gave thanks uh, and here's the end of it. I'm stronger because of my family who supported me through the rest of, roughest of times. I give the strength to all of those who come next to keep going, to never give up. And when you think it's impossible, just remember to say this piece of advice I got from a very wise woman. I did my best and my best is good enough. Thank you. So tell me about this moment for you, Hannah. Who gave you that advice? You know, Victoria Alonzo, who is the president of Marvel, mm. uh, the, my second day, she said, you know, come to my office, let's talk. And she knew I was nervous. She knew this was new for me. And I'm in this big world right now that you know, I'm, I'm biting off a big chunk. And she wanted to make sure I understood that she was there to support me. And as we went through this film, I'd call her when I was feeling overwhelmed or I'd call her when I needed a lift. And I was always very... It's not right. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. It can be more perfect. I need this to be more perfect. She said, no, it's beautiful. It's great. It's not, it's not good enough. It's not good enough, Victoria. I, I, you know, I, I have to do more. What more can I do? And she said, you have to say this to yourself every day. I did my best and my best is good enough. And I've never really thought that way before. So I wrote it on a post-it and I put it on a mirror <laughs> and I said that every day. I did my best and my best is good enough. Because I needed to understand that. I needed to learn that. And I needed to sort of step away from this, you know, twice as hard for half as much mentality. My best is good enough. And whether that's twice as hard or not, it's just who I am and this is my best. And, and she taught me that. And that's where that came from in the speech, you know. And I wanted to make sure I said that uh, because I wanted other young women, other young girls to be able to say those words to themselves. Because oftentimes as a woman in a man's world, your best is never good enough. And you keep pushing and pushing and you'll push yourself Um until, you know, you're not healthy anymore. Mm -hmm. And I say that to myself every day. And I'm a little bit more laid back, you know, working on Black Panther 2 right now. <laughs> and um, 
uh, it's not quite as intense for me. It's like <laughs> everything has to be perfect. But uh, I'm more at ease in my role and I'm a little more confident than I was the first time. Well, Hannah, your best has not only been good enough, it has been a true blessing uh, to me and to so many of us consuming your work. So thank you for that. Thank you. And thank you for this time. Thank you so much. That was my conversation last year with Hannah Beekler who won an Academy Award for Best Production Design for The Black Panther in 2019. She also designed the second film and the Afrofuturist period room she curated at the Metropolitan Museum in New York is called Before Yesterday, We Could Fly. You can find images of it on the Met's website. Also, a note about something very cool that we are doing in a couple of weeks here. We are going to record our show in front of a live audience at the famous Apollo Theater on Martin Luther King Day. This is part of an annual event produced by WNYC at the Apollo to honor MLK Day. And this year, Notes from America will be the first hour of the program, and I'll be hosting conversations inspired by the song Young, Gifted, and Black. So the event is Sunday, January 15th. That's, again, MLK Day. We'll, of course, broadcast it here that evening. But if you're going to be in the New York area, come join us in person. Tickets are free, but you got to RSVP, and they do go fast. They're available starting tomorrow, so get all the details at wnyc.org slash MLK2023. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts and join us on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Jared Paul does music and mixing for our show. Editing, producing, and reporting courtesy of Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. And I am Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time with us tonight and happy 2023. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level you'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.